If you have one, you can turn in your Bible to Matthew 18. We'll look at the end of that chapter this morning. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Those are the verses that are printed there in the bulletin for you. We're talking about forgiveness this morning as we just had a song of forgiveness. Uh, The officers in our church, really, uh, uh, the elders and deacons, really for the last few years have been thinking about forgiveness, talking together about forgiveness, reading that book by Tim Keller about forgiveness that we're starting now in our uh, monthly home group meetings. Uh, Joe Pope preached on it uh, last summer on the topic of forgiveness here and uh, at a presbytery meeting. And he has suggested that the single greatest need in the world and in the church is for forgiveness. The greatest need that people have is for forgiveness. Above all, we need God's forgiveness. Uh, That's right at the heart of the gospel message. If you don't have God's forgiveness in Christ, uh, you've literally got hell and that's it. Christianity would be nothing without forgiveness. The Christian's first prayer is for forgiveness. And then it's a constantly recurring theme in our uh, liturgy, in our life with God, the prayer for forgiveness. And if sinners are going to live together in the church, if we're going to live together in the love of God, then we also need to forgive each other. It's simple enough to say that. Um, It doesn't make it easy to accept or to do. Uh, We need God's forgiving love to change us. We need to receive that gift from him in such a way that it brings us joy to share that gift with others. Uh, We need to come to love forgiveness and delight in forgiveness, which would be absolutely unthinkably impossible apart from the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to forgive the sins of others with reference to God's forgiveness of our own sins. That's what we're talking about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, give us the help of your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself, as we consider the word of Christ, your Son, together now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him, uh, one one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers or the torturers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Uh, Christian forgiveness is such an extreme thing that it is instinctive to want to temper it, <laughs> uh, to want to, to you know, dial it down to a level where it becomes bearable. Right? Whenever the subject of forgiveness comes up, people will immediately probe the boundaries, uh, explore the limits, say, okay, yeah, forgive, sure, that's fine, yeah. But what about in this case? What about in that case? Uh, what if the offense is, is just really bad? Do I have to forgive then? What if, what if it's the fifth time this has happened to me? What if it's the tenth time this has happened to me? When can I say, you've gone too far, we're done here? When can I say, I've forgiven enough, I need to take care of myself now? Uh, we want the caveats. We want the exceptions. Yeah, sure, forgive. Unless, of course, the offender has done this or uh, maybe he failed to do that. We cannot bear to consider forgiveness without limits like that. Uh, which means we actually can't bear to consider forgiveness as Jesus reveals it. Which is limitless and without reservation. <clears throat> Last week we heard... Uh, Jesus is teaching about reconciliation in the church. That's the context here. If your brother, so we're talking about in the church, if your brother, a fellow son of God in Christ, sins against you, you go and tell him his fault with the hope of gaining your brother, with the goal of restoring that relationship, right? So that's reconciliation. And the whole church is supposed to be involved in reconciling brothers to each other in the church, such reconciliation implies forgiveness. It requires forgiveness. So Peter asks, I mean, he sees that much. <laughs> he sees that forgiveness will be a component, a requirement <clears throat> of reconciliation Jesus talks about. So he asks, okay, but how much forgiveness is enough? Where's the limit? How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. So as soon as the subject of forgiveness comes up, <clears throat> Peter does just like we all do. He probes the boundaries. He looks for the caveats and the exceptions and the limits. In some sense, Peter uh, wants to be able to do what Jesus says. He wants it to be possible for him to do. Uh, which means he has to bring Jesus' commandments down within reach. He has to dial down the intensity of the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about. He even tries to be really magnanimous, really as generous as possible, right? So the rabbis, the wise teachers of that time, taught that you have to forgive three times. You have to forgive three times. So that's, you know, everybody ex accepts that idea maybe, right? 
Peter probably thinks he's being quite impressive if he says, not three, seven. Is seven times enough? After all, seven, I mean, he picked a good number. It's the number for completion. It's the number for perfection. It's the fullness of forgiveness. Will that be enough? Uh, But still, you know, the very question comes from a desire to limit forgiveness. Uh, So Stanley Hauerwas has a commentary on Matthew, and he says this. He says, we cannot help but be sympathetic with Peter's question. Because it simply seems contrary to good sense to offer unlimited forgiveness. You know, maybe we could do the difficult thing, right? Maybe we could do even the, the really impressive thing, forgive seven times. But surely we're not being told to do the impossible thing, to forgive without limit, without question, without equivocation, without reservation. But Jesus doesn't define forgiveness with caveats and exceptions and limits. He just doesn't. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's not the new limit, right? That's 77 is not a literal number. It's hyperbolic. And it means forgive times without number. No keeping track, no keeping score, limitless forgiveness always. Peter's asking, you know, where's the finish line? If I can just know where the finish line is, I might be able to make it. I might be able to summon the strength and the courage and the resilience and the endurance to just drag myself over that finish line. And Jesus says, there's no finish line. Uh, There's something else interesting about Jesus' use of the number 77 here. Maybe you picked it up from our Old Testament reading from Genesis 4, Lamech. Boasted of his vengefulness. That's like the opposite of forgiveness, right? Vengefulness. He boasted of his vengefulness in a song designed, crafted to impress the women, to impress his wives. Genesis 4, he's bragging to his wives in this song, strutting like a peacock, like these are the, the most beautiful feathers, right? I've killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Right? So how's that for manly boasting? <clears throat> a, a little boy hit him, and he killed him. The sinful human heart revels in 77-fold ruthless revenge. And we've talked about this a lot of times. Hollywood knows how to make money off of revenge. Hollywood knows how to make money with John Wick movies or Taken movies, right? Hollywood knows that there is a lust for ruthless revenge in the human heart. And Hollywood knows how to show us what we want to see so that we'll pay for it. The old dead heart revels in ruthless revenge. But the new heart of those who belong to Jesus, those who are full of his Holy Spirit, the forgiven heart, glories in 77-fold ruthless forgiveness. Ruthless forgiveness. We love the gift of forgiveness that we've received from God, that incredibly lavish, costly, undeserved gift. 
And we love the idea of lavishing that same gift on others, even if it's terribly costly and they're completely undeserving. Of course they are. That's the definition of forgiveness. They're undeserving. So Jesus tells this parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So it's a parable. It's an analogy. This is not the primary way we conceive of our spiritual debt to God. Uh, God has not reduced our spiritual debt to him merely in terms of numbers, finances, right? Uh, a numbers game that's closely tracked by the great accountant in the sky. It's, it's helping us, right? He's telling us this parable in familiar terms so we can start to get just some idea, just a conception of what the kingdom of heaven is really like. Our spiritual debt to God is not monetary. It's, it's not boiled down to numbers. It's personal. It's relational. We sin, we violate our relationship with God, and there's a real debt There's a real wrong that we have done, and it's a wrong that God knows, and it's a wrong that God wants to make right. In his righteousness, he wishes to settle. God will have justice, and he will also forgive. And these two things come together at the cross of Jesus Christ. But the attention of this parable is on a servant who owes this unimaginable debt, one talent of gold, was worth 20 years' wages for a day laborer. And the servant owed 10,000 of those. So, I mean, it's like saying he owed a gazillion dollars. That's what it's like. He owed a gazillion dollars. It's such an astronomical figure. It's basically inconceivable how it was even possible to rack up so much debt. It's like the king had given this servant all the wealth of his whole kingdom. And the servant had just blown it all. That's to say that the sinner, the sinner really owes an inconceivable spiritual debt to God. God has given us everything. He's given us life and breath and everything that he's made in all creation. And we've blown it all in our rebellion against him. Our debts have been piling up Since the day we were born, every year, every month, every week, every day, every hour, every minute, every second, our debts pile up. It's impossible for sinners to calculate, let alone repay. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So selling the servant and his family and all his possessions... Uh, they wouldn't even begin to cover the payment for his debt, right? There's, there's no way for a sinner to repay his or her spiritual debt to God. Well, that doesn't stop us from trying. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Right? He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He relates to his master like someone relates to a loan shark. Just give me some more time. I'll get you your money. I promise. Right? I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say. He's having a hard time truly understanding the situation. If he thinks he can repay this debt, he is uh, totally out of touch with reality. If he wants to be able to get himself out of this mess, 
Not only is that never going to happen, it's not really a good impulse. It's not a good impulse to want to get to try to get yourself to promise to God I can get myself out of this mess. If you just give me some time. If you want to quantify your spiritual debt to God in a way that makes it seem possible for you to satisfy God. I mean, that's just something going on in your head. That's not reality. You've got to bring God's requirements way down or else boost yourself way up until they're within your reach. Uh, Either way, that is the impulse to justify yourself before God. Self-justification, which is also sin. So not really going toward paying off your spiritual debt. (laughs) It's just racking up more of it. So the servant didn't ask for forgiveness. Maybe it was impossible for him to even think of asking for forgiveness. It's just not on his radar, right? But the king is a forgiving master. In verse 27, it says, out of pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's hard to begin to understand the magnitude of the master's mercy here. I mean, the debt was off the charts, but the master was moved by pity for the servant. He was not impressed by the servant's plea for more time to repay the debt. He was moved by pity in spite of the fact that the servant had racked up all this debt and could only relate to him poorly as, you know, to make things worse. He was moved by pity to take the consequences of the servant's debt on himself. He took the consequences of that debt on himself. He suffered the loss of that great wealth. It was gone. That's painful. And he did not require even a portion, not even a token of it back from the servant. His forgiveness was not in any way dependent on the servant's repentance. His forgiveness was not dependent on the servant's promises to reform his ways. He was moved in his heart to forgive in spite of the servant not deserving it. And that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is being inclined in your heart to have compassion and love for someone who does not deserve your love. For someone who has caused you real pain, real suffering. Forgiveness is willingly taking that suffering, enduring the consequences of what they've done, enduring the the violation of that relationship, while also seeking to maintain that relationship. For the good of the offender, to bless the offender. Forgiveness means taking the debt that is owed to you and bearing the burden of it yourself as if it were your own debt for love's sake. That is what God has done for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. God is moved by pity for us in spite of ourselves. God has compassion for us and he comes to us in mercy. How many times has he made himself known to his people as As Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's in his very nature to forgive. That's who he is. When he makes himself known to his people, this is what he says about himself. It's his identity. He is the forgiving God who releases all our debts by taking them upon himself 
and dying under the burden of them at the cross. Jesus suffered the violation of our relationship just as if he had racked up all of our spiritual debt. He did not require even a portion of that debt from our hands, not even a token. His forgiveness was not dependent on our repenting. His forgiveness was not dependent on our promises of reform or even our asking for his forgiveness. Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We couldn't even calculate our spiritual debt to God, even to begin to understand it, let alone pay it. But Jesus doesn't require that payment from us. Jesus took that debt from us and he paid it himself just as if it were his own debt. God does not forgive us because he wants to be free from his own bitterness. God isn't bitter. God, God's righteous anger, that's not bitterness. It's not vengefulness or resentment like we find in our hearts, our Lamech-like hearts. Divine forgiveness is not something God needs to do for therapeutic reasons. <laughs> Divine forgiveness is not therapeutic. He forgives for love's sake. Because that is what it takes to love sinners. That is what it takes to lean into a relationship and establish a relationship with sinners. That's what it takes for true reconciliation and communion with sinners. It takes forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is love that just won't be deterred by our betrayal. Love that eats the pain of our betrayal, that pays the price of the betrayal on our behalf for our good. That's the kind of love this parable is picturing for us when the master forgives the servant his impossible debt. And the terrible, shocking, appalling thing is that divine forgiveness has no effect on this servant. None at all. His heart has not connected with it or been changed by it. He has not understood it or appreciated it. He has not loved the forgiveness that he received or delighted in that forgiveness in any way that corresponds to the reality of it. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. <clears throat> hundred denarii. That's the equivalent of, you know, several thousand dollars. It's significant. It's, it's a big deal. Uh, it's nothing, absolutely nothing compared to the debt that his master had forgiven. It's like a hundred thousandth of one percent of that debt. It's not even a drop in the ocean to the debt that he had been forgiven. But it must have seemed like a really big deal to him, to the unforgiving servant. Because he demanded what was due with a violent vengeance like Lamech, who had killed the boy who had hurt him, right? Choking the one who owed him the money. His debtor said to him exactly what he had said to his master. But he had no pity on him. The unforgiving servant could not see himself in this debtor. 
He could not see the relationship between him and his debtor in light of his relationship with his master, what his master had done for him. He did not love the pity and forgiveness he had been shown in a way that made him want to show the same thing to others. All he could see was that this debtor owed him, that this debtor's unpaid debt was too painful to forgive. He could not bear to forgive the debt because he did not love his debtor with the same love with which he had been loved. He had no communion with his master in his master's love. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Don't bother hunting through the Bible for the caveats and the exceptions. Jesus says it is wicked not to forgive your brother from your heart. If Jesus put limits on his forgiveness of us, we would be in serious trouble. But Jesus forgives without limit. That does not make him some kind of codependent doormat who becomes, you know, invisible because he suffers any and all abuse. He'll just take it and take it and never say anything about it. His true personhood beams brightly through in his forgiveness, in his freedom to love sinners. God the Son came into the world, was entirely surrounded by people who would use him and abuse him. Still, he came in order to forgive. He had people plotting to kill him. He had a friend conspire to betray him. He was abandoned by everyone that he knew. He was tortured, humiliated, and mocked. He was crucified and reviled while he was suffering. And none of it was too severe for him to forgive. At any point, he could have said, look... Enough is enough. This treatment is is just pure evil. It wouldn't be healthy for me to continue in this relationship. Uh, I've put up with too much. Now I've got to start caring for myself. His pity, his compassion, his mercy moved him all the way to the cross to die by our hands while praying for our forgiveness. And his attention and his goodwill were always utterly, impossibly fixed on us. Jesus forgives without limit, and he calls you to participate in his love, in his forgiving love. If you don't, you have no communion with him. That's what he says. If you think someone has sinned against you, too severely, too often, so as to be beyond your forgiveness, you have not understood God's forgiveness. You have not come to know the nature of a true relationship with Jesus. The one true God is the forgiving God, and the people of the forgiving God will be a forgiving people. If you truly know the forgiveness of your sins in Christ, then his forgiveness 
will be life to you. It's beautiful life and refreshing and glorious life. It'll be a delight to forgive in his name. A delight, not a, something to be done reluctantly. A delight, a joy to love someone, even though it means eating the pain they caused you. A delight and joy because of your relationship with Jesus, because you know Jesus in forgiveness. He gives you the privilege of knowing him in hard places like that. The only way to love with a divine forgiving love is to know yourself to have been loved with a divine forgiving love in Christ. To see the beauty of forgiveness in Christ. To come to appreciate it and look for fellowship with Christ in it. We need to forgive others with reference to God's forgiveness of our sins. That means seeing ourselves in our debtors. As Jesus has seen himself in us. This means taking the burden of their debt upon ourselves. As Jesus has taken the burden of our debt upon himself. It means committing to the relationship. Committing to their good. Even though they've hurt us. And probably will hurt us again. Just as Jesus was committed. Even to sinners who crucified him. And who continue to sin against him. Do you belong to the God of forgiveness? Do you belong to him? Do you rejoice in the incredible gift of God's forgiveness of your sins? Do you want to testify to divine forgiveness, unlimited forgiveness that we find in Christ? Do you want communion with Jesus in his forgiveness? Let the sweetness of his mercy make you sweet with mercy. Amen. I'm going to pray the words of the song that we sang, Forgive Our Sins as We Forgive. Let's pray. Forgive our sins as we forgive, you taught us, Lord, to pray. But you alone can grant us grace to live the words we say. How can your pardon reach and bless the unforgiving heart that broods on wrongs and will not let old bitterness depart? In blazing light, your cross reveals the truth we dimly knew. What trivial debts are owed to us? How great our debt to you. Lord, cleanse the depths within our souls and bid resentment cease. Then bound to all in bonds of love, our lives will spread your peace. Amen.